And we are moving on from the book of 1 Thessalonians to the second letter that Paul wrote to the church of the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians. So if you turn with me uh, to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to look at chapter 1 in its entirety today. Um, Paul obviously wrote this letter to the same church, the same city, the same people that he wrote the first letter to. Uh, And commentators and scholars agree that it wasn't very... Um, soon after the first letter was received by the church in Thessalonica that Paul uh, got a report on their response to the letter that he wrote this second letter. Uh, He wrote it from Corinth, uh, and it was a a quick response to the first letter. And as we walk through these uh, three chapters, this is a short book, very uh, profound and rich three chapters, we're going to see many of the themes that we saw in 1 Thessalonians. But a part of Paul writing this second letter was to to continue to encourage the church there in the same things he was doing in the first letter, but to really solidify some some theological truths, to bring about some correctness, Direction, as we'll see uh, when we get into the second chapter. Uh, and so this, this book is really a sister to the first, and, and, and obviously so. These two letters uh, go hand in hand, and we'll see that as we walk through Second uh, Thessalonians. And so there's three chapters here. We're going to take the next three weeks to look at each chapter. So today we'll be in chapter one. Next week we'll be in chapter two. We'll finish with chapter three. And then we're going to take a pause. We were going to go straight back into our Genesis study, uh, but we're going to take one week off. Uh, I'm going to preach just a standalone sermon on family worship and the importance of that, and so I'd encourage you to be uh, planning on being there for that Sunday, as that will be a really important Sunday in the life of our church, and then we will uh, pick up in Genesis and continue on there. So if you would, uh, follow along with me beginning in verse 1 of Second Thessalonians. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another's is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. 
If you remember, when we started the book of 1 Thessalonians, we talked a little bit about uh, the, the type of city that Thessalonica was. It was one of the ten largest cities in the Roman Empire, uh, and it was a melting pot of people from all over the world, different backgrounds, different belief systems. Uh, there was a, a port in the south, a, a major highway running through this city. On any given day, there were travelers from all over the world that would reside in Thessalonica, and it was a very dark city spiritually because of the different belief systems that were represented there, but also there was a lot of sexual immorality happening in Thessalonica. Sexual impurity was just running rampant in the streets. And as we have considered before, the gospel comes to the church in Thessalonica and takes hold of these people, this church, uh, and they were never the same. And so you would think that in a city that is represented by so many people from so many different backgrounds, so many different belief systems, that it would be a city of, of tolerance, that people would, uh, would be tolerant of this new religion, this new, uh, this new way of living that was known as, as Christianity. Uh, but that would not be the case. And we know this in our own day. We live in a day that is always preaching to us tolerance, but it's only a tolerance as long as you agree with the person's definition of that tolerance. And so the people here in Thessalonica, uh, the fact that they were followers of Christ actually brought greater pressure on them. They hadn't sworn their allegiance to uh, idols or to Caesar or sexual immorality. They had sworn their allegiance to Christ and they were hated and despised and persecuted for that, had gone through much affliction. We see it mentioned here again in verse 4, there, that persecution, that affliction that we saw throughout 1 Thessalonians that we saw when the gospel came to them in Acts 17. And if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of the church there in Thessalonica, under this persecution and this affliction, because they are followers of Jesus, we might say with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will the wicked go unpunished? But Lord, why are you allowing this type of persecution and this hatred and this affliction to be poured out on your bride, your people? I think this is a fair question to ask. But Paul comes to them in this second letter and he wants to encourage them with this truth that the light momentary affliction that they are facing is preparing for them an eternal weight of glory. And so as we come to this first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, we see that God's justice gives hope to the church. You see that running through the, the verses here, particularly in verses 4 through 12, uh, the idea of God's judgment. This is not new to us. We just spent a couple weeks talking about that in 1 Thessalonians, thinking about the day of the Lord. And when we think about judgment, the judgment of God, we think about apocalyptic movies and, and, and darkness and death. And, and, and we tend to think about it in a negative sense. But what we find is that the coming judgment of God serves as an encouragement, serves as a hope for the bride of Christ. And so how can it be a source of something, the judgment of God? How can it be a, a source of something as positive as Hope. Well, let's consider what the passage says to, to see what this looks like. Uh, beginning there in verse 5, we see that the justness of God's justice is proven by persecution. Uh, verse 5 there begins with the word this. 
This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That word righteous there can be translated just. The just judgment of God. God is right and good and just in his judgment. He is a good and perfect judge. And he says there that something gives evidence to that. You see it there in the word this. Now, there is some debate as to what exactly this is pointing to. Uh, I don't want to get into that debate. I simply want to say that I believe it's pointing to the persecution that precedes it in verse 4. So let's consider uh, what is happening here in verses 3 through 4. So he, he, in, he introduces the letter very much like he did 1 Thessalonians. In fact, if you go back to 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, it's it's basically word for word what we saw in the intro to that letter. He just adds the phrase from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see in verse 3 some of the same things we've already, already thought about. We always give thanks to God for you. We see this love and care and affection and this thankfulness that Paul has for the church in Thessalonica along with Silas and Timothy. And they're thankful because of their faith that is growing abundantly. Again, this church... Christ has taken hold of them, and they are growing increasingly more and more into the image of Christ. And he mentions again the theme of love. Again, we've said it time and time again, this church had mastered love. And so he mentions it again there in verse 3. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. They are doing the very thing that Paul called them to do in the first letter, and he affirms them in that, that they are growing more and more in love. And so in verse 4, he says, We ourselves boast about you, his crown of boasting, as we saw before, in the churches. So as they travel around uh, about and they're visiting the churches, they can't help but talk about what God is doing in this particular church. It's profound. It's incredible. The gospel ha has taken hold of them. And notice, though, what he says. They boast about them in the churches of God for what? Their steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. They have been steadfast. They have been faithful in the face of persecution that none of us in this room have ever faced and maybe never will. They have stayed true to the call that God has placed on their life in the face of great persecution. And so we come back to verse 5 and he says this... The persecution that you're facing is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Your persecution that you are facing gives proof to the fact that God is a righteous judge. We would agree in this place this morning that God is perfectly right in all that he does. And persecution gives evidence to this truth. We might think to ourselves, persecution seems that it would prove otherwise. But, but Paul tells us here in verse 5 that the fact is that persecution actually gives evidence to the fact that he is a just and righteous judge. Firstly, he does this by showing us that the enemies of the church, those who are persecuting the church in Thessalonica in particular and, and are still persecuting the church in our day, God allows them another day of breath and life on this earth so that he might show his people, the church, that they are his and are truly saved. Persecution gives evidence to the fact that they are worthy of the kingdom of God, that they are in Christ. If you are facing persecution and stand, standing steadfast through that affliction, that gives evidence to the fact that you are saved. He says there in verse 5, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now this is in no way saying that suffering or persecution in particular is 
adding to their salvation or is securing their salvation. Their salvation is already secure in Christ and Christ alone. But he is saying here that their, their persecution is evidence of the salvation that is already secured in Christ. Secondly, though, he's highlighting here that because God is perfectly just, he will not and cannot let the wicked go unpunished, particularly those who are persecuting the church. And he will deliver his people once and for all from all suffering, including persecution. This is just a momentary affliction that God has something greater in store for them. Proverbs eleven twenty one says this, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. This is the hope that is found in verse 5. And so when persecution comes on the church, it serves as evidence of God's justice. God will have his day of vengeance, and he will deliver us, his bride, on that day. And so this gives us hope as the church in the face of persecution to wait patiently for the Lord's return. And so although as we gather here as this particular church today, although we've never really faced direct persecution like the church in Thessalonica had faced, we most certainly face indirect types of persecutions, if you will, from governments or neighbors or those who mock the bride of Christ. Make no mistake about it, although we do not face the type of persecution that many in our, do, in our day do face, the world despises and hates us because we have declared allegiance to Jesus. I think something that will help us understand this is, is to consider uh, the BUDS training, BUDS training that Navy SEALs go through and uh, you know, being in a military town, I'm aware that there's people from all types of branches of the military. So depending on what branch of the military you're from, you might disagree with this statement. But I would think that it's commonly agreed that the SEALs are the best of the best. Okay? If you need to pull me aside later and correct me, feel free. But BUDS training in particular is known as the toughest of the tough when it comes to military training. And something fascinating about BUDS training is that 75% of people who enter into BUDS training fail. That gives evidence to the fact that the SEALs are who they say they are because they've come through that training and only 25% of them have stood It gives evidence to the difficulty. The difficulty of the training proves that they are the best of the best, that they are who they said they were. And so as we consider this persecution, uh, the, the, the sovereign hand of God in that, how do we apply it? Well, first, we are to trust in God's sovereign hand. We cannot, in our weak human minds, ever grasp the suffering and the sorrow and the darkness and the persecution that we face in this life. Whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's the uh, diagnosis of a disease, we face sorrow in this life, including persecution, that we will never sometimes understand this side of heaven. Why? Why God allows his bride to be persecuted in such a way. But it's not for us to know the why, dear friends. It's for us to simply know the God who is good in the midst of that. That he is good, and he is faithful, and he is working all things together for the good of his bride and for his glory, and we rest in that. 
And we see that persecution gives evidence to the fact that we are his bride and he is in control. But secondly, and more specifically, the application for us is what we looked at just last week. That if God will have his day of vengeance, we do not need to seek out vengeance. Remember what we saw last week in 1 Thessalonians? Chapter 5, verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Romans 12, 19, Paul said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is a very practical, hands-on application of what we see here. God will have his justice on the wicked. And so while we wait, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, we are to live faithfully and peacefully in this world. Notice, though, what God's justice looks like. Paul here in verses 6 through uh, uh, verse 10 helps us understand what in the, the justice of God, the judgment at Christ's coming looks like in Particular, and in these verses, verses 6 through 10, we see the reward of God's justice is universal. What do I mean by that? Well, let's consider the text. Notice what he has in mind here. Verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Verse 10, when he comes on that day. This is the day of the Lord that we talked about in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. The day when Christ returns after he has brought his bride, the church, to be with him to bring about the judgment and the wrath of God on those who are not in Christ. This is the final judgment on the wicked. Uh, this is not the judgment on, uh, on those who are in Christ for our works. Uh, this is not a type of judgment that we see in the Old Testament as, as discipline on the people of God. This is the final day of judgment, the full wrath of God being poured out on those who are not in Christ. So hear this. Every person who has ever walked on the face of this earth will reap the reward of God's justice. For some, that reward is negative. For some, that reward is positive. I want us to first consider the reward for, of the negative. Look at there at verse 8. He's talking about two types of people here. Verse 8, he talks about those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Those who are not saved will be rewarded with eternal death. In our sin, we deserve this eternal punishment. What does the punishment look like according to just this passage alone? Look what he says there in verse 6. He talks about that the, the afflictors will be repaid with affliction. And so in this final judgment, there's a, there's a glimpse of hope for the church that those who have persecuted you will not be left unpunished. The afflictors will come under the affliction of a holy God. They will receive the reward in full. And notice what he says there in a flaming fire in verse 8. This unquenchable fire, this lake of fire. This is, this is literal, true, real torment. This is not a fallacy. This is not made up. Scripture makes it clear that hell is a real place, and it is a place of utter and complete torment. There in verse 6, he also says that God is inflicting vengeance. This is the vengeance of God. And so not only in this passage do we see that God is concerned with the harm 
that is happening against his people, and he is concerned with that. He's repaying with affliction those, affic- uh, those who are the afflictors. But God is primarily concerned with the wrongdoing that's been done against him in his holiness by sinful men and women like you and I. One reformer said this. He said, vengeance teaches that justice also involves the interest of God himself. Insomuch as the same persons that persecute the godly are guilty of rebellion against God. Hence, it is necessary that God should inflict vengeance upon them, not merely with a view to our salvation, although that is part of it, but also for the sake of his glory. Let that settle in for a moment. He says there in verse 9, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. The punishment of hell, dear friends, is eternal. This is not popular to talk about in our day. And you will share the gospel with people and oftentimes you'll get a response from them. Why is it fair that God would punish me for all of eternity for just the few wrong things that I've done? This just shows how poor of a view we have culturally and as people of the problem of sin. That sin is not just a few bad things that we've done in our life. Sin is in our very nature, and we are at odds with a holy God. We have offended a holy God by our sin, and the punishment, according to Scripture, is eternal punishment of hell. It says there in verse 9, away from the presence of the Lord, or away from the face of the Lord, that the Lord turns his face away from those who are cast into hell. God's gracious countenance does not shine on those who are in hell as it does here on this earth. There is nothing of God's good favor to be found in hell. There is no beauty of creation. There is no relief from the torment of the flames. There is no mercy to be had in hell. But it's important for us to consider this, that God is not absent. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. His righteous judgment and wrath will be on full display in hell. R.C. Sproul said this, he said, hell isn't the absence of God, but the presence of his judgment. And this is of no little consequence for us when we consider the reality of hell. When the Bible speaks of hell, it makes this clear. And so uh, people who say "We're, we're already living in hell, hell is here right now, they do not understand the full measure of just how God good is in his common grace. The, the breath in our lungs, the shelter over our heads, the food, the life, all that we have, those good things, they are here for now. But hell is a place of great torment. And so these strong words can offend us if we do not accept the Bible as wholly reliable. But this is indeed the just justice of God. This is what we deserve for our sin. But I want us to turn our, 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 our attention, our focus, to the positive reward of God's justice. Verse 10 speaks of those who have all believed. Those who are saved will be rewarded with eternal life. You might say, how is that the just justice of God? That there are only some who get eternal life. The better question for us to ask is why In our sinfulness, would God allow anyone into heaven? And yet he does, and he does it by just justice. God's justice was poured out on Christ in our place. And so justice was had for our sins, but we did not have to pay the penalty, dear friends. Christ did it on our behalf at the cross. 
He took on the full wrath of God that we deserved in our place so that we might receive his righteousness. And by believing on him, we will be saved. And so it's important for us to understand that in order for us to understand the love of God, we must understand first his justice. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know how, how you know that God loves you? It's on display at the cross. That God sent his son to take on his wrath in our place. To take on that just justice. He is a good and righteous judge. He will not allow the the wicked to go unpunished. And yet Christ, who is perfectly sinless, had no wickedness in him, took that wrath in our place. So the eternal reward for the righteous when Christ comes is in verse 7, that they will be granted relief from afflictions. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more tears, no more persecution. The just reward of salvation is life eternal for those who believe. The just reward of a rebellion, though, is death eternal for those who do not. This is a sobering truth that we hold to as the church, that there is a hell and there is a heaven. And I want us to consider, do we say we believe in the eternity of hell and, and, the, and the torment of hell and that those who are not in Christ will go to hell Have you really settled with that in your soul? Have you really settled with the reality, the truth of Scripture? This is not my idea. This this is not an agenda. This is the Word of God itself that your neighbor, your co-worker, if they were to die today without Christ, will be set for an eternity in hell. Have you settled with that? The reality of, of, of sin and death and hell that we deserve. Charles Spurgeon famously said this, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. If we believe the Bible to be true and wholly reliable, then we believe in sin and its eternal punishment. And this should spur us on to tell others about the hope of heaven. That Christ took the judgment of God in our place. If the final judgment of Christ is something we wait for, what do we do then while we wait? Well, this has been the theme all along in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians. The coming of God's justice encourages faithfulness in the believer. While you wait, be faithful. Look at verses 11 and 12 there. I want to read these again. He says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul closes the introduction to this letter with a prayer for the church. Much like he ended the last letter, we begin here uh, with another prayer. And there's three parts to the prayer. Firstly, he prays that God would make them worthy of his calling. Notice here in his prayer that he doesn't pray for the persecution to be removed. He prays that they would be faithful in the midst of affliction and persecution in all circumstances. 
What is this calling that God has placed on our life? Well, the call of God to salvation, first of all, is not based on any human condition or effort. Salvation is all of God's grace. It is because of God's love that we are justified as we see at the cross. It is not based on our race or our tribe or our gender or our merit or our potential. It is based on God's good grace alone. The call of God to salvation, though, will be accomplished through a task The proclamation of the gospel is the call of salvation externally to all men, to all people. The call to repentance and faith in the Messiah, the risen Savior, is to all. That we plead with all to come to faith in Christ, but the truth of Scripture is that not all respond to the call of the gospel in repentance and faith. But the hope of the gospel as we proclaim it is that some do. I think sometimes in our evangelism, we, we undermine the power of the gospel by not realizing that when we preach Christ to a lost and dying soul, that they can and will be saved. That if you share with the, the McDonald's server at the drive through after church, that they can be saved. We preach Christ with that type of understanding, that the gospel will accomplish the work that God has set forth for it to do. And so we preach Christ to everyone knowing that not all will believe, but some will. Secondly, though, he prays that they will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And so in Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that in Christ we are created to do good works. And so we please God in the Christian life by doing his will, and it is only by relying, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do this. It's not in us, it's Christ in us. And so we are not saved by works, we are saved by grace through faith, but works are an outflowing of the reality of what Christ has done in us. And the church in Thessalonica is an example of that. They are increasing and growing and thriving more and more into who God would have them to be in Christ. And so it's, it's God and his spirit inside of us and his word before us working in and through us to bring about these good works. Thirdly, though, he prays that the name of Jesus would be glorified in them and them in him. What does he mean by that? We've already said that God means for all things to work for his glory and praise, even persecution and suffering. And even when the wicked are having the wrath of God poured out on them, they too will say that this is the one true God. One day, people from every tribe and tongue will bow down and say, this is the Lord. Zephaniah 2.11, And to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations, declaring that Christ is Lord. And so Christ will receive all the glory when he returns, but he prays too in in regards to the fact that we will share in that glory. This is hard for us to fathom. How do we share in the glory of Christ? One of the reformers said this, Christ will not have this glory for himself alone, but it will possess all the saints. When the Son of God is manifested in the glory of his kingdom, he will gather them into the same fellowship with himself. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. 
This is hard for us to fathom, but I love how one of the Puritans, John Stott, illustrates this truth. He says the light bulb is an illustration of this. He says, as the electricity shines through the light bulb, Christ's glory shines in and through his people. Stott said this, we will be radically changed, being transformed into his likeness. We will glow forever with the glory of Christ. As indeed, the, he glowed with the glory of the Father. Verse 12 sums it all up in, in saying that this is simply due to the unmerited favor of God. The end of verse 12 says, it is according to the grace of God. That someday when we leave this earth, when we go to be with Christ, we will be like him. And so in light of the truth that our future is secure, we must not forget that God still has work for his church to do in this earth. Again, as we wait, we are to be faithful. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I mentioned this several weeks ago that the soldier on the battlefield is not looking to be comfortable He's not caught up in civilian affairs. He has his sights set on the task at hand. He is looking to be faithful. And dear friends, we are in the midst of a spiritual war, and persecution is merely a sign and evidence of that. And too many Christians in our day are entangled in civilian pursuits. And so, the application for us then is to pray that God would keep us and our children and our church faithful to the end. And instead of praying that God would keep us from danger, our prayer should be more of, Lord, would you keep us faithful in spite of it? As the world mocks us and, and jeers at us and persecutes us and is calling us daily to live like them and submit to their tolerant ways and to do the, the things that the world does, we as the church must stand faithful in the face of that, not giving way to worldliness and civilian pursuits. One commentator said this, while we long for heaven, we must also remember that we have work to do until we get there. And so as we close... We find ourselves, each of us, I think, in life at, at one point asking, how can a God who is all good and all powerful and all knowing allow pain and suffering and death and sorrow and the persecution of his bride? And oftentimes we find ourselves, even as Christians, in the midst of affliction, doubting the power of God and the love of God and the care of God, even in the midst of great suffering. We might say to ourselves, is, is he really all that he says he is? Maybe you come here to this place this morning with those type of thoughts. You're facing, facing a deep, dark season of life, and, and if you're honest, you're thinking to yourself, is, is he really as good as he says he is? I think we've all come to those moments at one point. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, talks about how God's present purpose in the world is not to prevent suffering, but to sanctify his people through it for himself. So we are to be faithful and steadfast in the midst of suffering and persecution, knowing that there is an end in sight. 
where we will be made like Christ. There's a coming day when these pains will be no more, but for now, God is working in and through all circumstances to draw us to himself, to make us like his son, and to bring glory to his name. Rest in that today, dear friend. God works in suffering to accomplish his purposes, and and he will have his way with his people and his church. Let's pray.